0: You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. In this next episode on Domestic Retrofit, we hear about a guide for assisting both architects and clients along the retrofit journey and the tough client conversations that are necessary to carefully weigh the trade-offs between the more generous open plan living spaces that clients almost always ask for and the urgency of carbon reduction.
1: And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, director of 1.5 Architecture.
2: our design development process. We're encouraging clients to do less to their houses often. If the standard project is knock all the rooms at the back of the house together and put a huge bifold door in, we're often trying to say to people, if you keep a sequence of interconnected spaces and reuse existing openings at the back of the house, there's potential for a much more interesting architectural character. People have very preconceived ideas of what they want to do. Often that is about one huge open plan space and maybe like a polished concrete floor or something like that. There's an architectural language or character that people really are attached to. That whole material palette and aesthetic needs to change if we're going to make our homes zero carbon and adapt our homes in a responsible way. That's also where it gets quite exciting, because I think that architectural language hasn't really been figured out yet. It's quite up for grabs.
0: Today, we're speaking to Joe Sharples and Jack Richards of Manchester-based Additional Studio, one of the AJ's 40 under 40 practices. Jack and Joe founded Additional Studio in 2018 after stints at Hodderin Partners and Kara Kusevic Carson Architects for Jack and Caruso St. John and Caswell Bank Architects for Joe. Their first joint project was the refurbishment of a derelict balloon shop into their own offices in Manchester's Chorlton neighborhood where they host exhibitions and community events. We're talking to Joe and Jack in the context of our domestic retrofit series because in 2020, during the pandemic, Additional Studio won a 7,000-pound RIBA research grant to develop guidance for domestic clients commissioning zero-carbon architecture. This work culminated in an exhibition in their studio shopfront that is ongoing. The guide is open source and can be downloaded from Additional Studios' website and architecture.com. Links in the episode notes. What I especially like about this accessible guide is that each recommended retrofit measure is described in terms of related opportunities, trigger points, if you do X, you should consider doing Y, and low embodied carbon options i.e., if you're doing X, you should consider doing it this way. The concept of trigger points is particularly relevant when it comes to domestic retrofit. It's about a holistic approach and not undertaking single measures in isolation. Additional Studio sparked my attention when I read the first sentence of the About section on their website. You may think no one reads these, but I always do, and usually it's just a few generic words. Jack and Joe describe their studio as, quote, celebrating sustainable, considered design, unquote. Even though the talk about designing for climate emergency has ramped up considerably in the last three years, it's still quite rare to find a practice defining and promoting itself this way. And what's really interesting in this conversation is Joe and Jack's clarity about the design skills informed by retrofit and passive house training that they now bring to the table and the fact that they have to really target their efforts to keep their design time and their fees under control. So, Joe and Jack, it's great to have you with us today. And before we dive into domestic retrofit, My first question is about how you named your practice. What does additional studio mean?
3: Well, we started the studio kind of consciously in a high street shop with the idea that we would reach out to the broader neighborhood and public. And the idea was to have this changing cyclical nature of shows that would be about architecture and also products and a closeness to craft and making that might form a series of editions. We still have the studio in the shop and this constant exhibition that we're always adding to and changing and trying really to communicate a lot of the ideas that underpin our practice to a wider audience and the public which is something that we feel particularly in relation to sustainability needs to be put out there a bit more and try and talk to people in an everyday context.
1: So could you tell us how your shopfront studio works as a way of communicating architecture to the public?
2: Yeah, so the idea is that it's a kind of approachable space that you can walk into off the street and engage with ideas of architecture, but also then start to understand what we might need to do as a society to tackle the climate crisis, really. How that informs all different factors of our lives in terms of how we consume and shop and change buildings and travel and things like that. Try and take all those issues and show how they relate to architecture because it's quite an impenetrable subject really.
3: The Decarbonise Your House Now exhibition is also currently on at the studio so it's basically open Tuesday to Friday and anyone can just walk in and have a look around at the material samples and all of the information that's part of the research that we undertook.
0: Yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask you about next because you spent most of last year really preparing this and working on this and researching it. So, what is in the guide, Decarbonize Your Home Now? And how did the exhibition go down when you launched it?
3: Yeah, so the idea of the exhibition came about as trying to explain to homeowners how you might adapt and decarbonize your house for the future. So a lot of our clients were coming to us with really typical extensions and kind of reconfigurations of their house. And it was sort of born out of the, our frustration of not being able to effectively convince clients how to do that in a using low carbon materials and all of the issues around architecture now. So the materials that typically are used in Victorian house extension are often kind of steel beams with concrete blocks and brick. Builders have their way of doing things and it's very difficult to persuade or kind of inform the clients enough so that they have the knowledge to also influence that process and really make the right decisions. So the, the guide starts off, I suppose, looking at The issues around embodied carbon and waste and then goes on to look at how you might whilst doing serious renovations to a property also renovate and upgrade the thermal performance of the house in terms of retrofit and then continues on to looking at more natural building materials and how you then move away from more conventional ways of building so we illustrated that with three Projects or this, the same project but shown in three different ways. So the first one uses kind of conventional materials and calculated the embodied carbon within that all the materials normally used, um, which was kind of ten times someone's carbon footprint for the year. And then the house, which is all about retrofit, gives the the answers of how to make a house more sustainable in terms of its its operational energy basically showing clients that you can, it's possible to use kind of 80% less energy in a house. So then in the final example, the materials used actually sequester more carbon than they consume. So it's a very holistic look at how we might um, renovate and extend houses at a domestic scale.
2: And in terms of how it's been received, I think when we conceived of the project, it was before the cost of living crisis that we're going through now, it was before even Insulate Britain was sort of drawing attention to to the need for like retrofit at scale. And we would suggest to our clients who'd come to us for a house extension that they might think about external wall insulation, for example, or not taking out all the walls at the back of the house, but leaving some structure and so that the embodied carbon of the steel could be minimised. We'd be routinely met with, Blank faces it just wasn't really on people's radar that the decisions they were making were having this this huge cumulative impact on carbon emissions and I think subsequently we've kind of used the report and the exhibition to inform and then advocate with our clients to try and take on some of those measures as well and that's that's rarely what clients come to us first and foremost for but the uptake has been really high since we've started giving this report to people
1: as part of our kind of briefing documents. So a client might have a budget for their project. How does it work? The kind of conversations of like, you've got X amount for the project, but it might be, you know, spending Y amount for retrofit works is then less on the wow factor stuff that they might be really excited about. Yeah. How does that play out as a, as a conversation?
3: One of the things that we always aimed for in the guide was that retrofit would become an aspirational thing, okay, it's not really that much of a wow topic right now, but it's becoming so critical that people insulate their homes, particularly with rising fuel bills, that actually having that conversation, convincing people in terms of the money side of things is becoming easier and easier. When I think the average cost of heating a house is nearly £2,000 a year, the equivalent cost of insulating the house is actually very minimal and the kind of long-lasting impacts of that is becoming more and more equivalent to the upfront cost and changing all the time of course when the the national grid does kind of transition to become completely decarbonized as in a hundred percent of our fuels to heat our homes is electric that cost at the moment of electricity is currently four times the price of gas so At that £2,000 a year, that could quickly become £8,000 a year. And that's absolutely terrifying. So that conversation is becoming easier. Our clients are obviously comfortable enough to employ an architect, but they're not, you know, they're not. We're
2: not in West London. (laughs) Often through our design development process, we're encouraging clients to do Less to their houses often if the standard project is knock all the rooms at the back of the house together and put a huge bifold door in we're often trying to say to people you know if you keep a sequence of interconnected spaces and reuse existing openings at the back of the house there's potential for a, a much more interesting architectural character and then with that saving you could spend that on an MVHR or whatever people have very preconceived ideas of of what they want to do. Often that is about one huge open plan space and maybe like a polished concrete floor or something like that. There's an architectural language or character that people really are attached to. That whole material palette and aesthetic kind of needs to change if we're gonna make our homes zero carbon and adapt our homes in a responsible way. That's also where it gets quite exciting, because I think that architectural language hasn't really been figured out yet. Like, it's quite up for grabs.
1: That's a really interesting point. It it relates to one of the other questions I had about how clients sometimes think that having an extension is the only way of improving the living space, that that's where you can get a good connection to the outside, for example. But really often extensions make the remaining parts of the house worse, marooning inner rooms far away from the outside. So how, how do you find these conversations go? I try to challenge these, these ideas. The one that we always
2: come back to is like wood burning stoves and we're always trying to tell our clients that, you know, clients who live on a street with a primary school for example and saying, you know, you can't put in a wood burning stove is really, really irresponsible. But the desire to have that thing is so powerful that even if you present people with all the facts about the efficiency of of heating your home in that way and the air pollution that you're contributing to, it's really, really hard to get over these preconceived ideas that people have. I guess there's always a point where you have to decide to step back away from those (laughs) arguments a little bit. And we probably go further than a lot of architects do in trying to advocate for best practice. But there is always a point where it becomes Well, you have to do what the client wants.
3: (laughs) We just see that as part and parcel of our role in being able to visualise alternative visual ideas, I suppose. And, yeah, we actually find it incredibly satisfying being able to convince someone that has no interest in retrofit or kind of, you know, maybe wants to be a little bit sustainable, but when it comes down to it, would prefer a really nice kitchen if we can convince them to do that in a way that incorporates all of those things and does appeal to their tastes that's the really tricky thing about private homeowners the public sector is doing really well in retrofit private homeowners the topic so often comes back to aesthetics and I suppose that's where we've found a small niche in being able to propose ideas that actually do appeal to those people and okay this looks really amazing but also it's I'm guilt-free also as a, as a kind of client and a consumer. People are really receptive to it and it's really exciting in that way.
0: Well, I think this is very brave what you're doing and I'm just wondering, can you give an example maybe of where you feel like you've gotten some traction in proposing doing less?
2: Well, we definitely got projects in the office now where people have come to us for, with an extension and are now... What they're implementing is not an extension and some retrofit measures, but still in addition to reworking existing spaces to make them work harder. Yeah, yeah, make them more more aesthetically pleasing and suitable for kind of 21st century life.
3: In the last year, we've done 10 or are doing 10 domestic projects. Prior to this, we had No projects that are incorporating retrofit measures now actually all of them bar one is. So I definitely think we have become more convincing in in the way we appeal to our clients as well. And we hope that other architects find it equally as useful. I think the research grant obviously gave us a lot of time to be able to research and get our teeth into everything. But the whole intention is not that it's... For us, if we're ever going to change the way that we work as a profession and be able to convince people, we have to do that collectively. And I think that was one thing that was really lovely about doing the research, was that we sent it out to lots of other architects and professionals prior to publishing it for comment, and just to check that we weren't putting in something that was totally ludicrous. It was so well received, and other architects are using this now and sending it to clients, and I found that quite surprising that everyone made time because it felt like there was attraction and a need for this kind of report at the time when we were publishing it.
0: That's really fantastic. So it is an open source document which people can now download from your website. One of the barriers here, or one of the drivers really, is you know what things cost. So as you're working through this with your clients and convincing them maybe they don't need such a big extension and they might consider reconfiguring things and upgrading other parts of the existing house, do you have any conclusions yet of what tends to make sense or what you're seeing more of?
2: I think it is quite individual to the house and the client. And that's why that's why retrofit such a challenging thing to implement and also why i think small domestic practices that are working on all these projects need to be the ones that are up to speed with it and upskilling to tackle it because at the moment there's no government leadership on how we're going to implement retrofit so it's really about trying to persuade people to do it themselves and that requires the client upskilling so much as well like there's so much to learn and understand in terms of how that project's delivered And with our clients, we're often not that involved at that stage, so we're giving them as much information as we can, and then they're going away and implementing these retrofits. And they're really complex projects with really complex sequencing and lots of different contractors involved, and you have to be quite prepared to get stuck in, I think. With clients who can't afford to implement all those measures in in one project, it's about what, what they should do, over 20 years, rather than just like, this is this project, this is what you need to do. Here's your extension drawings and we're off. It's about introducing people to all these processes and strategies that need to happen. And even if that's all we're doing with some clients and saying like, this is how you would work towards moving to an air source heat pump or something, this is what you would need to do. I mean, architects' knowledge about domestic retrofit isn't great. So to expect clients to know a huge amount about how to implement these projects over 10-15 years. is just a huge learning curve for everyone, really.
0: This is exactly what we spoke to Sarah Edmonds of ACAN about in our last episode. What we need is whole house retrofit, which means putting together a plan that you can implement in stages according to your budget. Rushing in and doing one measure in isolation can lead to problems. You've upskilled to the point that you can feel confident advising clients and with the help of your decarbonized now guide your clients are taking it seriously. That's a huge step forward from the business as usual the way small residential projects have been done in the past.
3: I suppose we'd really like to extend the research to provide more resources for smaller architecture practices to have a sort of Ideally, it would be like a tick box of what a whole house retrofit would be and then lay out a plan to do it. But it's so specific to a client and to the house and existing materials. And often, in fact, we don't have any projects that are solely retrofit. We actually tag that on to a bigger project. Of course, lots of measures like um, moving where your window sits in a wall for example would make sense to do at the same time as insulating the walls and then also thinking about the ventilation and all of those things have to happen at the same time so it's very difficult to then split them out into a logical plan without causing issues later down the line um so in a certain sense You can't separate everything and you have to combine a lot of things together at the same time, which does make for a rather hefty bill. Our approach really has become a fabric first approach and technological additions later because actually you can make kind of more long lasting and greater energy efficiency savings in a fabric first approach rather than anyone who kind of wants. I think the common assumption is that you can just add a solar panel to your house and then that's that's a lot better and that's, yes of course it is better, but actually you can make far greater savings in the long run through um, kind of a fabric first approach.
2: With the guide, when we were writing it, the um, report, when we did send it out for consultation, one of the big things that we got back was you can't introduce people to all these measures without highlighting the risk at every stage. And it's kind of like, that is true, but also we've got to try and raise awareness of this whole thing that's going on because it has the awareness has been raised within the profession, but it hasn't really... I mean, it's starting to now reach people outside of the profession. But if with every paragraph of our report where we were trying to inspire people and, and talk about the creative potential in retrofit... If we followed every paragraph with a big list of the risks associated with it, people just aren't going to engage with that at all. So I think,
1: I don't know, it's a tricky thing to navigate, I suppose. (laughs) Well, yeah, because there's so much technical input to manage this risk, it can be quite difficult to do on a sort of project-by-project basis. One idea that was raised on the Zero Ambitions podcast was having standard approaches in in all the different regions of the uk based on each different type of dwelling and then standard details that people could use and be confident that those would be robust in the circumstances that they're being used rather than having to sort of outsource woofy modeling or or this kind of huge amount of technical input on a project by project basis if there was more that would have a bit more confidence about using that could be a way to enable it to be upscaled
2: And in Manchester, there are organisations that have done that exact thing, like People Powered Retrofit and Carbon Co op have details online that you can download of where you should put your window within the wall if you're doing EWI or like how to extend a slate roof over insulation and things like that. Like they've got those details just available online. So there are organisations doing that, I suppose, to us we are still an architecture practice, so we kind of want to design those things <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a project-specific way.
3: I mean, one thing that I think would be quite interesting and actually feels necessary for the average person would be able to implement lots of... to actually do it in a DIY sense and to have people being taught how to internally insulate, for example. Like, it wouldn't be beyond the realms of a possibility that people could actually do a lot of this stuff themselves if there were courses or some sort of provision it's not rocket science although the complexity involved is often in the sequencing and the phasing of things i think a lot of people with a kind of some guts i suppose
2: joe enjoys diy is what she's saying <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i would never do that <laughs>
3: I mean, most people probably can't have an architect, you know, just wouldn't be able to afford that. And I don't understand how it's going to happen on such a large scale unless people are kind of taught to do it themselves. I think that would be quite incredible to be able to do that.
0: Well, let's come back to architects for a minute. So, Joe, you're a certified passive house designer and George also did that course. That was how he jump-started his move. And Jack, you're a retrofit coordinator. Was that through the Retrofit Academy?
2: Yeah, there was a kind of funding stream to pay for built environment professionals to take that course during the one of the lockdowns. So it was all online, but it was all paid for by Greater Manchester to upskill the industry.
0: That's fantastic. So what are your observations about What's the best way for architects to upskill in this area? And how much should architects be doing themselves versus outsourcing to
2: specialists? I think doing the course was really useful in terms of understanding what processes are involved, re-familiarizing myself with all the building physics, whether actually we want to offer retrofit coordination services, I'm not sure that we necessarily do because it's not the most exciting <laughs> work at the end of the day i think it's been really good in terms of how we've changed how we work on projects and informed all of that joe what do you think about passive house in that sense because often people say you can outsource the passive house design but
3: yeah i don't think you can you have to understand the kind of balance of things so when one thing is worsened i.e you make the form more complex and therefore there's more area for heat to be lost that's then going to add a cost in terms of some additional insulation or some better u-value of window somewhere else and so as a designer you're making these decisions that you might then if you subcontracted that out to someone else you're kind of aware of what comes back but actually be able to model and have the flexibility and understanding how at a very early stage of design that how you're manipulating the design like that has huge consequences to these what then become ridiculous calculations but you have to have that understanding in the first place I think to be able to be in control of that sequence and the knock-on effects later down the line. In terms of upskilling, I think a lot of that has really come through our teaching. So we both teach at Sheffield University and I personally felt like I needed to be able to teach the next generation of architects to a level way beyond that which I was taught and that isn't so kind of superficial, I suppose. So it's massively influenced the way I teach at university and I incorporate the kind of nuts and bolts of Passive House into the way that we're designing in the university studio. So there was this huge realisation at university. There was a kind of watershed moment, maybe three years ago, when everyone was just like, "Why? yeah, we, we kind of don't feel qualified, actually. And this admittal of that. It kind of first started when we were putting a research grant together One prior to the one that we actually eventually submitted to the ROBA with a professor at Sheffield University, Fionn Stevenson, who is just incredibly knowledgeable and actually really grilled us and said, you know, what are you doing? And really pointed a finger at us and we were like, well, you know, we're a bit woolly about it, to be honest. And then we really took that to heart and decided that we had to make a big step change and that we are younger architects in the next generation and need to be way more on it in terms of the climate and we can't, we can't, yeah, there's just no alternative. And also talking to older architects, they kind of feel a bit embarrassed about how their buildings perform. I do think they wish they'd have done things differently.
2: Yeah, it's crazy that it's taken this long for the profession to acknowledge how complicit in the problem we are. <laughs> and and I think it's still fairly niche when you think about the wider profession. What we're doing is pretty out there. It's not part of a standard service if you appoint an architect. And often clients are surprised what they've got themselves into <laughs> when we start working with them.
3: Surprised and also grateful, Delighted, I would yeah. say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess all of this has an impact on your fee structure.
2: Probably not enough. Actually, this going back to the retrofit coordination, like, in South Manchester, we're in a relatively well-off neighbourhood. There is an upper limit to what what our clients will pay for our design services. And... In some ways, that answers the question about why we don't provide retrofit coordination services and pass and things like that. It feels like there's so much consultant time included in that. And actually, until there's grants and government leadership on on how we're going to pay for that, I think clients are prepared to pay for the actual measures if they've got the money to do it and you explain the benefits. But I think in terms of paying for all these different professionals to be involved in the design process. It's just not realistic or feasible. So I suppose we're trying to flesh out the standard domestic architect service with this additional information while still doing it in a cost-effective way for the client. And there's obviously limitations to that because we now have two strands where if we're designing an NFIT house, people have to pay a lot more, <laughs> obviously. and. Because we have all this expertise, we're probably a lot more expensive than some of our competitors in Manchester, so then you can't help but become niche. And what we wanted from the report is that every plan drawer or architect working on house extensions would be kind of referring to it, or every client who's doing a loft conversion could have a look at it and and make informed decisions. But obviously, as you upskill, you do inevitably become a bit more niche in your offering and then you get into the what historically has always been the situation with architects who refer to themselves as sustainable in their about pages. They kind of become experts in sustainable architecture and win specific type of work. And that's what they go off and do. But it's still very, very niche. So I think we're really interested in how that becomes all much more mainstream rather than us becoming niche experts in, in sustainable design.
0: I totally agree with you and that's what I've been championing at the AJ for so long. I think the other piece of it is seeing good design work come out of this because that's what's going to speak to your colleagues and the profession as a whole. and, and So let's talk about some of the other projects you've been working on.
1: Another project that you've been involved with is working with the Trollton Community Land Trust to fight the demolition of the 1920s Trollton Picture House and refurbish it for community use. Could you tell us about that project?
2: Yes, except at the moment, I think it's recently been sold to a housing developer, so (laughs) it's kind of... um,
3: crashed and burned. Yeah, it's a shame. It's been going round and round in sort of feasibility studies of how they would kind of make the project stack up. And it's sadly, yeah, just very recently, the Community Land Trust, effectively no longer in the building so yeah it probably will get knocked down i imagine by the developer
2: so ask us about a different project
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes there's an interesting house on your
2: website Yes, yeah, we talk about shady nook joe
3: yes
0: that looks really interesting
3: tell us about that yeah we've just submitted a planning application uh, for a a house for a family that up sticks from Charlton to move to five acres of woodland in the pandemic. It's probably quite a familiar story.
2: They came into one of those pop-up shops we were talking about. We just got chatting to them and they said they bought this land and it, it's our first new build house that we've done as a practice.
3: They're really exciting. So it's, a, it's designed as a passive house. It's kind of sunken slightly into the edge of a bank which runs along a railway, and the idea being that the kind of lower floor sleeping spaces are kind of set within the bank to be slightly more thermally efficient, and then also reusing a lot of the stones on site to create gabion reinforced walls to hold up the land, and then the structure above that is a tim- will be a timber frame clad in oak that is sourced from the woodland itself so a lot of the materials we're hoping to kind of actually source directly from the site itself and it to be incredibly highly performing so we've started looking into micro hydroelectricity generation from the stream that runs through the woodland and sitting in in this really dense ancient woodland it's like an incredibly special site that we're just basically hoping to touch as lightly as possible.
2: And in that instance, we have been able to, even at concept design stage, we measured the embodied carbon in what we were proposing and then submitted a pre-app, including all that information to justify the materials we were using and the approach to the design development. As we then developed the design for planning, we reflected on that and adapted the design. So where the project Allows it we are now going into lots and lots of technical detail about embodied carbon and carbon emissions of the property. The big challenge always being the scale of that house was pretty big, so it's like trying to <laughs> trying to balance this big house with um, lots of materials to build it and trying to get that to a position that we were happy with as architects and the client was happy with as a house for them to live in it was a creative conversation, wasn't it? But it was, we were definitely coming at it from different perspectives, I suppose.
3: (laughs) There was a lot of back and forth in terms of, okay, so we're building you a really efficient house. That doesn't mean it can be twice the size as it needs to be. And what's the point of making a passive house if, you know, this is a kind of conversation (laughs) um, maybe we shouldn't push so far on. But... There is a question of, you know, so you're building something that's really efficient, that doesn't mean it should be twice as big. Actually, that's totally against the original point. That was a really hard conversation.
2: But we don't want to put off clients who want us to design big houses.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's really brave, and I think it's great to hear you say this. George, you want to ask your Manchester questions?
1: Yeah, sure. So you both did your part ones at Manchester School of Architecture and your part twos at London Met, which is what I did myself. Then, after working at design led practices, you set up your own practice focused more around sustainability, which I did in London and you did in Manchester. When I was at Manchester in the early mid 2000s, they were still talking about shrinking cities and what to do with wasteland sites, even though new residential towers were starting to march across the city. Now, when I go back, it's amazing how much of the post-industrial land is now dense residential development, does Manchester feel like a boom town at the moment?
3: It feels like a boom town from the 90s. I look aghast, actually, at all of the tower blocks that are being built at the moment, almost as monuments to something that should not be happening. It's actually what my master's studio this year at Sheffield has been looking at, calculating the embodied carbon of... The Dean's Gate Square development, which is one of the kind of most iconic of the new series of tower blocks that have been approved by Manchester City Council. So, Manchester has a really incredibly aspirational target to become carbon neutral by 2038, 12 years ahead of the rest of the UK, and yet it's still approving hundreds of towers that are built in concrete. There are four tower blocks in this series of developments and they account for just over 1% of the carbon budget that's supposed to last until 2100. It's the kind of estimates of the volume of concrete that's used purely for that one development. It's really shocking and scary that planners aren't doing more or there isn't the regulation there to be able to stop that, that kind of development. I mean, it's not just Manchester, of course, it's happening in London and all over the world.
2: I guess it feels like a shame in Manchester because, as you say, there's been such a long wait for all this activity to happen in the city centre and it to be, and it doesn't feel like it's being done in an environmentally responsible way. So in some ways, it's a great time. Like, it is an exciting time to be in Manchester, but it does feel like a bit of a, I don't know, like a Wild West. Like, there's not a lot of strategy for how this stuff's being implemented.
0: Yeah, no, we need more... Um... Upskilling of local authorities and we need more regulation.
2: But then public practice starting in the north this year is a kind of amazing thing to happen because definitely within local authorities and they're, they're so under-resourced and they're so lacking in the people and the skills to provide any sort of leadership for how cities are developing.
3: It's up to us, isn't it? That's why we're really trying to change the way we practice as well. It does feel like a very constructive and collaborative moment to be making changes within practice as well.
2: As a, an industry, we're definitely seeing bigger practices with professional clients making those changes, and we're starting to see that permeate into the mainstream more and more. To go back to decarbonise your house now, it's a much bigger challenge with domestic retrofit just because clients are, you know, there's not like Briam to target or there's not... I suppose there's passive house, but that's still quite a luxury to commission a passive house. It's a much m- more difficult client base to try and to try and shift,
3: and building base, and, yeah, and as build. Well. Yeah. well, it multiplies out, um, and it's way more people, and the complexities are more specific. I suppose
2: every project that we have on site at the moment, we're working with a different builder that we've never worked before so to try and communicate those the sort of importance of rethinking how we're how we're building domestic architecture that's a big
0: challenge that is a yeah yeah. (laughs) so last question for each of you sort of how did you get started on this journey
3: to go back back to when I was studying at Manchester University I designed a paper recycling factory that used um (laughs) The, the river to transport paper to a space on the canal. I feel like I deviated for 10 years and learnt lots of things and learnt to build buildings, but there definitely wasn't enough focus on the environment and where things come from and the importance of how buildings perform. Um, I think we've all been distracted and when setting up our own studio, the root of that was actually wanting to practice differently and to be able to go back to the heart of what I was really interested in in the beginning. Then I think we've done a lot of work in the last three years racing to catch up with ourselves. A lot of that has come through teaching and some part of it feeling guilty that we are part of this massive problem actually that buildings are so complicit in the climate crisis and that we need to change
2: definitely when we were at university there was this fairly deluded perspective which is like if you design a good enough building it doesn't really matter what carbon emissions associated with it because it's good architecture and it's gonna outlast you. And I feel like that was very much the culture of our education. Some of my experience in practice as well. And I think then, not just us in our practice, but as an industry, we're obviously realizing that that isn't true and you you can't justify these buildings with huge carbon footprints because we don't have that luxury to make architecture in that way anymore. So you just have to be so much more on it about it. That's definitely what the last three years have been for us, is like upskilling to tackle that, essentially.
0: Really interesting. Well, thank you very much. And that concludes this mini-series on domestic retrofit. We have one more episode for you before we take a break for the month of August. We'll be speaking to Louisa Bowles, Partner and Sustainability Lead at Hawkins Brown. Louisa was recently named AJ100 Sustainability Champion for 2022. If you're enjoying climate champions please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform it helps people find us so we can build an audience you can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts thanks for listening